0: I'm Ian Cook at the National Portrait Gallery. I'm sitting with Stephen Harding, the editor of Military History Magazine and the author of the new book, The Last Battle, when U.S. and German soldiers joined forces in the waning hours of World War II in Europe. Stephen, can you tell me a little bit about your new book and um, how the project came to you? Yeah, the
1: story is... um it takes place during the last week, uh, actually the last couple of days of World War II in Europe, May 4th and 5th, 1945, to be exact. It takes place in a castle in Austria, Castle Itter, uh, which overlooks the Inn River Valley in the part of Austria called Tyrol. And essentially what happened is the Germans had been keeping some very important French prisoners in this castle. They were called honor prisoners. In German, it's Ehrenhaftlinge. And they were essentially hostages. The Germans were keeping them in fairly good condition. There was no torture, no work. They were pretty well fed, but it was still a castle prison. And the idea was that they could be traded for high-value German prisoners, uh, or if necessary, they could be used to coerce members of the Free French government. Uh, During the last couple of days of the war, uh, if you remember, Adolf Hitler killed himself. Uh, This takes place several days after that. Everybody sort of expects that the war is going to end at any moment, but it doesn't. There are still, uh, especially Waffen-SS units, very highly motivated, uh, fanatical, diehard units that are not going to give up easily. And as the uh, American army moves from southern Germany into Austria, uh, they start encountering both Wehrmacht, that is, German army soldiers, surrendering in droves, but not all of them. Some of them keep fighting as well. So it's a very uncertain and very dangerous time, and the book is about the rescue that was thrown together very quickly, a rescue mission, to save these uh, French VIP prisoners, because as it turned out, um, Himmler had ordered uh, their execution, and a Waffen-SS unit was moving towards the castle uh, to do that.
0: Who is the American principal in this tale?
1: The gentleman who led this rescue mission, uh, he was wearing First Lieutenant Bars when he did it, but he had actually been promoted to captain and didn't realize it. So we tend to refer to him as uh, Captain John C. Lee or Jack Lee. This guy was a guy right out out of central casting. He was hard drinking, cigar chewing. Uh, His men really uh, looked up to him, and he really loved to kill Germans. And he'd been doing it since right after D-Day. Uh, he was the commander of Company B of the 23rd Tank Battalion, which was part of the U.S. 12th Armored Division. And they had fought all the way across France, uh, southern Germany, and into Austria. And on May 4th, he and his company were in a small town in Austria called Kufstein, where we just were last September. It's a beautiful little town. It's right on the Inn River. And they were essentially waiting for the, the signal that the war was over. And uh, that afternoon, into town comes a, a Kubelwagen, sort of a German military jeep, with a German officer, a major named Josef Gangl, uh, waving a white flag. And he drives up to where Lee and his men are, are essentially waiting for the war to be over and tells them of these uh, French prisoners in this castle and asks For Lee's help. I have a sneaking suspicion suspicion that Lee was one of those guys who didn't know what he was going to do when the war was over, because he'd really found himself as a tanker, and he probably wasn't cut out to be much else in the civilian world. So, to his men's uh, chagrin, probably, he volunteered himself, um, two of his tanks, and the crews to the tanks. And as they were leaving Kufstein following this German major, He picked up four infantrymen, uh, all from the 142nd Infantry Regiment, who also were probably a little upset that they got tagged for a mission because they also assumed the war was over. So this ragtag sort of group goes to the next small town down the road, which is called Virgil, and uh, they realize that they probably don't have enough men. So uh, Josef Gangl, he he was called Sepp. Sepp is a a nickname in German for Josef. Sepp Gongel volunteered... Several of his own men, we're not exactly sure how many, it was between 12 and 15, loaded them up in trucks, and this now mixed German and American force heads up towards the castle. Now you have to understand that Jack Lee and his men had been fighting Germans for a year and a half. These Germans, some of them, had been fighting first Russians and then the Allies for longer than that, so I can imagine there was a little bit of a tense uh, situation when they all realized that they were going together. So as they started the several miles from Virgil up to the castle, they were ambushed several times by the SS. It's it's a single twisting mountain road to get up there. We drove it, and and it's it's hair-raising without people shooting at you. So they finally get up to the castle, and the French, um, by this time, part of the reason they're in so much danger is their German guards, their SS guards, have fled. They're gone. So these uh, French folks are just sort of waiting to see what happens and lo and behold, this what they think is the vanguard of a huge group of Americans drives up, and they're extremely disappointed to realize it's basically 12 Americans and a bunch of Germans, armed Germans. So um, Lee is in overall command, uh, and they set up the defenses. Now this is a medieval castle. It was started in the ninth century. It had been successively uh, a fortress, um, a place where they tortured witches, which is kind of interesting. Uh, It was later a boutique hotel. It was one of the first uh, sort of ski destinations uh, in the 1920s. But it's still a castle. It has crenellated battlements. It has a really strong uh, gatehouse. And there's only one way in. And that's a very narrow entrance uh, road that goes over a bridge that crosses over about a 30-foot drop into sort of a dry moat. And the castle itself is set on a spur of this ridgeline, so the walls don't even start until you're about halfway up this chunk of mountain. And if you want to reach the walls, you have to come up vertically, probably 200 feet from this lower area, which, of course, means that you're under observation by anybody in the castle. So they set up their defenses, um, and, of course, I'm leaving out huge chunks of, of the story. Uh, and then early the next morning, the SS unit that had been tasked to execute these French prisoners shows up, and the battle begins. And...
0: You say that, these, um, that the French prisoners are, are high-value prisoners. Do, do you mean um, folks from the officer corps, run-of-the-mill wealthy, or who are these French prisoners? And why are they particularly valuable? There were uh, 14 French
1: prisoners in Castle Litter total, 10 men and 4 women. And when I say high value, I mean two former prime ministers, Paul Reynaud and Edouard Deladier, two former chiefs of staff of the French army, uh, Maxime Wegan and uh, Maurice Gamelin, and I apologize for mangling the French. She speaks it, I don't. Um, plus, there, were, there was a, a very well-known labor leader, Léon Jou. Jouot. Jouot. Um, and there were two members, uh, two former members of the Vichy French government. One was Jean Barotre, who had been, uh, in the interwar period, one of the most famous tennis players in the world. And the other one was a gentleman named François de la Roque, who was largely considered to be France's leading fascist. And yet, um, although they had been members of Marshal Pétain's collaborationist government they uh, crossed Pétain and ended up being handed over to the Germans. The four women are interesting because one of them was Auguste Bruchelaine, who was um, this labor leader, Leon Jou- Jouot's longtime assistant and also personal companion. They'd been together for 25 years at that point and only got married actually after the war. She volunteered to go into this prison just to be with him because uh, Leon had a bad heart and some other things. Um, a couple of the people who were prisoners um, one was a gentleman named Marcel Granger, absolutely unimportant. He was a, a French planner and a reserve officer in the French army. He was there only because his brother was married to the daughter of a very French, a very famous free French general, uh, Giraud. And another couple, one was uh, Mary Agnes and her husband, um, Alfred and I won't even attempt their last names. Uh, I think it's Caillot, but Mary Agnes and her husband were there only because Mary Agnes was the sister of Charles de Gaulle. So the Germans were holding them probably to, to find some sort of leverage with de with Gaulle. The interesting thing, and you have to uh, admire the, uh, the Germans, uh, they probably had a lot of fun with this. Most of these French people hated each other. They were from opposite political parties. Uh, you know, Leon was this huge leftist labor leader. Francois de la uh, before the war, had been the leader of one of the largest you know, fascist organizations in France. The two generals hated each other because one of them replaced the other one, and they both lost to the Germans. And Paul Reynaud and Edouard de Lallier, the former prime ministers, uh, although they had earlier in their careers been friends, ended up as political rivals. And in the, pre- or in the interwar period, their mistresses hated each other. So that kind of went from there. This is typically French. So uh, for the, uh, some of them were there for three years almost. They basically avoided each other, which is kind of, even though Castle Litter is a castle, it's not a huge castle, and there's not a whole lot of places to to hide. And they all took their meals in the same room at the same time, but they would sit at separate tables and just ignore each other. So there was one other um, gentleman that we should uh, talk about. Uh, This guy's name was Kurt Schrader. Kurt Siegfried Schrader, actually. He was a uh, captain in the Waffen SS. I mean, this guy was hardcore all of the war, up until the uh, the last few months, when, I mean, he'd fought in Russia. He'd fought in the West. He was highly decorated, and when you look at his picture, he looks like the poster boy for the bad Nazi. But by he'd been wounded seriously in Russia, and uh, had moved his family from Germany, uh, where they had been living, because the German cities were being bombed he moved them to the small village of Itter right outside the the castle, and he was given a a house there. He was recuperating from his wounds, and his wife and children were living with him. And when the Germans who'd been guarding the castle decided to leave, the commander of the guard force, a, a captain named Wimmer, who was a really bad guy all the way around, he didn't want to seem like he was not doing his duties, so he basically drafted this recovering Waffen-SS officer to be in charge of the prisoners or to take responsibility for him. So I'm not sure what a, a gentleman using crutches was going to do. He had no weapons. Um, but when the Americans uh, and, and their German allies showed up, Schrader threw in with them. So we have American soldiers, German army soldiers, a Waffen-SS officer, and a bunch of French people who don't like each other. And when the SS um, unit hit the castle on the morning of the 5th they all coalesced and picked up guns and fought back
0: it sets the stage for a great Memorial Day weekend read for y'all if you will indulge one more question um, I, I think a lot of people figure we've heard most of the stories they are already hear about World War II by now can you tell me how you unearthed this one Yeah,
1: I think the first part of that is the reason most people never heard about this. It was a very small event right at the end of the war in Europe, and Americans especially, but pretty much everyone, was tired of the war. And for Americans, their attention was focused more on the Pacific, because remember, that war went on uh, in the Pacific for uh, some months longer. I first heard about this story of Castle Itter 30 years ago when I was a staff historian at the U.S. Army Center of Military History. Um, Dr. Fred Beck, who was uh, one of my uh, supervisors, knew of this story and had started to put a file together intending to write about it himself. But he ended, not, ended up not doing that and asked me if I wanted the file. So I said, sure, sounds like a great story. And then I basically put the file away for 25 years. Um, You know, life happens. You get married, you have children, you work. uh, And then in 2004, I was uh, on an assignment for the magazine I was working for then in San Francisco. And I was invited to a cocktail party where I started telling this story to a gentleman who was also there. And he turned out to be Bryce Zabel, a a very well-known Hollywood screenwriter. And he said what everybody says, this will make a great movie. So he and I sort of started working on um, a script. He was writing the script with with my input. And in 2008, I wrote this story up as an article for World War II magazine, uh, which is part of the Weeder History Group, for which I now work. And about uh, two years ago, I thought, you know, this is crazy. This, This really needs to be a book. It's a great story. And by the way, I found out that some of the things I'd written in the article were incorrect because... I was just going on the most easily available information. So I dug into it, did a whole bunch more research, found out the story, and I was able to track down three people who actually took part in the battle. Um, All very nice gentlemen, but all in their mid-90s now. And I interviewed all of them, um, and I tracked down a whole bunch of records at the National Archives in Germany, in Austria, in France, my wife translated a lot of French documents for me. Um, I hired a German translator because although I lived in Germany for five years, my German is not good enough to, to translate. And uh, it all kind of came together. And so that's how we ended up with the book. And my agent, as soon as I handed this to him, he said, we can, uh, we can sell this immediately. And he was as good as his word. He sold it within days uh, to De Capo, which is part of the Perseus group. And especially, it's been out officially since uh, May 4th. And in that time, it's now, um, depending on what hour you look at it, it's, in the, it's always been in the top five or six of Amazon's best-selling history books. Um, it's already in reprint, uh, and we are waiting to
0: find out uh, about a sale of the script. Stephen Harding's The Last Battle when U.S. and German soldiers joined forces in the waning hours of World War II in Europe, is in our bookstore and yours. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks for asking me.